No, I was thinking about, you know, your whole concept about this idea of like life and transition. And mm-hmm. I, I, I really did have a crisis with my own identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, I, I got obsessed with like Carl Jung and, and I tried to, you know, find myself and through do this shadow work and so on. Um, you could say I sort of fell into the sort of pop Jungian psychology that Instagram and Facebook sort of um, <laughs> just screams from above. Jordan Peterson has called for a need to rediscover the spirit of the father. Many have been inspired to embark on their own hero's journey to set their life in order. But how do we balance order and chaos to live a life of meaning? What does it actually mean to be surrendered to God? And how do we root ourselves to stable ground as we witness the re-enchantment of reality? At Manifesto, we're engaged on a mission to rediscover and understand manhood, and from this foundation to create a dynamic and thriving community. My name's Paul. Welcome to Manifesto. Javier, welcome to Manifesto's podcast. Thank you. Good to have you on board here. So yeah, we were introduced by a shared friend and contact, Cadell Lost, who, who talks a lot about philosophy. Uh, he, he did a interview with me on Nietzsche and Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think you watched that. And then uh, he, he sent me a link where you were talking about that, that the conversation um, and said like, hey, maybe you guys should have a chat. So we, we connected a little while ago. And I, I, I've been kind of exploring this theme of transition recently. Uh, people who are in some way, like we're all in transition in our lives, but there's like major transitionary shifts happening in you know certainly in my country but in like you know national geopolitics and maybe even in the way that we you know as humans are being in reality these days um and and so i thought that we just there was so much uh, juice in what we're talking about so I said, oh, well, let's, let's also have a little podcast interview and chat about that so um you're running a youtube channel you've just landed back or recently come back from military service do you want to just Give us a little bit of background of uh, where you are in the world and what you're doing. And also tell us a little bit about the YouTube channel that you're running um, and what you're trying to do there. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Um, so right now, yeah, I'm in Arizona. Um, I just moved here like two months ago. So that that shows that I, I literally got out of the army about two months ago. <laughs> I served for about six years. Um, so now uh, it's, you know, everything's kind of, you, you kind of forget like how everything is kind of just given to you, um, you know, in the army setting, you know, your healthcare is taken care of, your place to live, money, you know, you don't really even have to worry about like any of those things. Um, you could say the only thing that you have to worry about is just the job, just doing your job. Um, but yeah, now, now there's um, a complete shift right? Nothing is sort of, um, you could say has, has this confident security, but, uh, you know, now I, I finally have a job. So I work at a, I'm, I work as a medical receptionist at a urgency care. Um, so that's, that's been great. I think it's, uh, it's going to be like a perfect job for me to kind of, um, go back to school. And I think that's another thing that has been really kind of causing some havoc because it's like, um, trying to pick a major you know what is it that I want to do um I think we can always look at things and kind of just say like 
well, you know, I'm just moving to Arizona. And, but there always seems like something bigger is um, manifesting itself <laughs> that you, you begin to prod up, you know, why am I in Arizona specifically? Why am I um, now wanting to go back to school? What is it that I really want to do now? Um, and, and, it, and it does become like this debate of, is it that the job you want to find, is it going to be like your dream job? Is that, is that what it boils down to? Just finding your dream job? Or is there something else? Um, I think I, the way I answer that question is, in my opinion, it's probably very rare that you're going to find your dream job, <laughs> mm -hmm. so to speak. I, I think there's people that definitely have both. But I, I feel that you need something on the side. You know, you need something um, that can sort of nourish you. Because um, I think putting like all your eggs in one basket for the job, being the nourishment and the, you know, the dream and everything is, um, it's fine. But I, I just feel like it's, it's a sort of rare thing that's going to happen. You can get discouraged. What's your conception of a dream job? Like, what does that mean when you say dream job? Like, <laughs> That's a good question. Mm -hmm. uh, so... You could say like, like, for example, my, my notion of a dream job would be like, um, I like studying a lot of religion, right? So hmm. off the bat, if you were to ask me, okay, Javier, just pick a major, like, don't care if you're going to make money or like survive <laughs> or find the job at all. Um, I probably would be picking something like religious studies. Um, I would love to do that or, you know, something in the line of like philosophy, but you know, it, it's this weird thing that <laughs> you're like, okay, there's there's a couple nuances that I can take here. Either I can just go for it um, and just kind of hope I, I do something with that later in my life. Or I just kind of realize that I can just find a job that I don't mind doing and just do that on my own time and sort of just fulfills anyways. Um and then, of course, there's always the danger that actually doing the job itself can just ruin it for you. It's possible. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of. Yeah, yeah. What I'm hearing is like kind of balancing like a kind of uh, your passion and then pragmatics of like, okay, well, I need to pay the bills and I want to establish, you know, a, a solid home and an income and uh, establish a family maybe or something like that as well. And mm -hmm. then can I just do what I really want to do? Um, I just heard a talk between Jonathan Peugeot and Jordan Peterson. It was like a Montreal talk. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, they, they spoke a lot about like, they started talking about this problem of complexity and how, you know, there's an infinite way of, of interpreting texts and an infinite way, you know, there's infinite amount of data and any kind of scene or something like that, infinite complexity as well. And, and yet when, when, as human beings, when we orientate in the world, we, we have this entire incredibly complicated kind of, um, hierarchy of meaning and so when we when we look around and orientate ourselves then we automatically just see meaning but then they they go into kind of like you need to have a top of the pyramid to be able to establish you know what's important and able to act in the world because otherwise you're kind of like indecisive or aimless or even nihilistic or something like that right and so you know the way they talk about it they you know, they bring in this concept of you know of god and say well what the hell is that says jordan peterson of course right so we don't really know what it is but like we we, we wrestle with god or something like that mm -hmm. um but but i guess that's where like you know it's something that we all have to face and like you know i i've certainly had long periods in my life where i've taken a kind of idealistic 
decision based on a theoretical idea of like, this is where I want to go. And like, I'm going to trust that it's the right thing and probably burnt myself many times with that as well, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so I don't know. So what are you doing right now as you're, as you're in that situation um, and you're still deciding what you're going to, what you're going to major in and what you're going to study. So I, I actually, I picked, this is a random one, right? It just, it just feels random when I start, you know, telling about all the things that I do. Um, I chose plant science that that's, that's what I chose to do. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. I felt like that was a job that I've never, a field that I've never entertained at all. So it's actually kind of just in this realm of grayness that I, I won't be able to say, yeah, I wouldn't like that. Or, or I would definitely like that. Um, um, but so far it does seem interesting enough to me that it is very possible that I would like it. And um, I do, I, I do have like this sense of balance where I feel like probably, you know, I wouldn't mind, you know, studying plants and stuff uh, as my daytime job. And then, you know, at home, I just sort of crawl away into all my religious books and stuff and, <laughs> and do my channel. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I feel like that's a perfectly fine uh, balance for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Where, where, why plot science? Where did it come from? Like, do you have any idea? I, like how I, that well, came on your radar yeah. at all? I, there is some ambition in that. I mean, I guess you can see, like, I, I see the necessity now of, um, you know, you know, if we take like our cultural and environmental situation, I, I do feel like if we sort of use plant science to sort of, you know, some solve some of the the famine problems, or um, you know, how how do we sort of go through the environmental problems with you know with plants themselves you know how do we make them more sturdy so that way mm -hmm. we don't have a sort of a food problem and um what are the benefits of plants that are sort of already available that maybe medicine i mean the the thing that i've learned about being a nurse in the army was that when you give somebody a medication there's strong side effects um, sometimes and sometimes those side effects you need another medication to alleviate that side effect but that medication that you give to alleviate that side effect also has a side effect so you're just going through a chain of medications mm -hmm. and i've recently learned about you know some type of plants is that they're not they're not like that they don't don't they don't function like that it's not like you get a side effect and you have to sort of give you another plant <laughs> it's not like that at all and I, I find that actually very fascinating that's really because uh, really i've just heard several conversations recently like this is the passion of technology really technology is like you 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 introduce some technology to solve some kind of problem but then that te new technology creates some new unforeseen problem and so you need more technology to solve that and so what we do is we just keep on you know creating more and more technologies that create more and more complicated solutions and but but what you're saying is that there are natural kind of we can return to looking at natural ecologies perhaps or something like that and, mm -hmm. and, and see patterns or, or ways of being that can get out of that spiral or something like that yeah 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 uh, that is exactly um what i, I i'm kind of adamant about like you know just kind of i I'm not like so adamant about it to where I'm like, oh no, let's let's get rid of medications completely. I'm not like that, but I, I do see that there is this balance of like, you know, um, I think a lot of people have had bad experiences in, in hospital and medication to, mm -hmm. we can present with them another option, another option that is perhaps just as viable. Mm -hmm. um, 
So when you say I, plant I, science, like I, I initially thought you were like growing plants or understanding how plants work, but is this also for human consumption? Is this kind of like some kind of homeopathic? Well, it, uh, it, the plant science is a very broad, very broad sweep. Um, it can go into botany. It can go into sort of medicinal um, plants, stuff like that. Or it can go to sort of like agricultural, um, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that, like helping the, the crops survive and, and get rid of pests and stuff. Yeah. Um, so there, it's a broad sweep. And I guess I'm still not knowing exactly what that brought, like, where am I going to specify in? Mm -hmm. But um, I think I'll probably figure that out along the way well so. okay, how about we try to go a little bit further back then I, i'm curious to hear a little bit more about where you're coming from i i certainly i found like that it's it was, I, I get more clarity on the way forward when i look where i come come from so so how mm -hmm. like how did you get to arizona or like and where 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 have you grown up where where's your family um and can you remember the first time you had this idea about plant science like where did that where who planted that <laughs> what's the story behind how that first dropped into your into your uh, your mind yeah Okay, um, so I was I, I was born in Florida. Mm -hmm. um, when I joined the army, I ended up they they basically put me in Kentucky. Um, so I was in Kentucky for about six years. Mm -hmm. I probably how, shouldn't how have been. When you joined the army? Uh, I was like twenty three. Yeah. Okay. And what was what, what was your motivation for doing that? Um. So, really interesting situation. Uh, there's a lot of things that happened actually sort of culminated in a big explosion. Um, so one thing that kind of happened, it was like a kind of side remark that sort of got the wheels going. Um, I was working at Panera for like two years mm -hmm. um, before I joined the army. And I remember a girl that had previously worked there and I was kind of setting up the plates uh, for the food and calling out orders for the customers to get them. And the girl that had previously worked there before, she saw me and she said, "Oh, you're still you're still working here." Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, "Yeah, <laughs> you know." But the the way she said it kind of really stung in terms of like I should have been doing something uh, more with my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, that 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 yeah. Ever since that that time that that comment affected me, and that sort of got the wheels rolling. Mm -hmm. um, but it was not only that, it was um, at the time I had a roommate who was my best friend and it, um, it wasn't panning out. It, it wasn't panning out because all of a sudden he had a girlfriend and she basically moved in with us. Mm -hmm. And the problem was, you know, I'm thinking bills, right? I'm thinking she's also doing laundry. She's also consuming water, electricity, everything of that nature. Um, and in a big sort of fight manifested over you know her having to pay some type of something mm -hmm. um, for staying mm -hmm. um, but that didn't pan out and you know i was going to have to find a place by myself i didn't want to move back with my mother um, mm -hmm. i was also at the time thinking about going back to school but i didn't want to go into debt um, you know so i think all those things sort of manifested in considering the army and sort of what it had to offer. Um, and, and what of did course, that offer com compared to other other jobs, would you say? Um, yeah. Well, work? like now, I, I feel like now it's probably more competitive. But at the time, I was. Um, it it did like I would say honestly, I probably would not have joined the army if I didn't get a good um, job offering to sort of 
train in. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted, I instantly knew that if I was going to join the army, I needed something that was going to translate out of society. I mean, into society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I you got want to just like be trained in killing, <laughs> killing Iraqis or something. Yeah, like killing yeah Arabs exactly. Something like that, yeah. I didn't want to just be trained by doing that. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I luckily I, I scored high enough on my ASVAB to um, get this nursing position that was available at the time. Um, and typically the way the army functions is that you can pick the job that you want to do, but you need to have the score for it. And it also needs to be available at the time that you want to join the army. Um, so it's very specific in that manner. Um, and then also like if you are physically healthy, if you know, whatever the job sort of requires of you, if it sort of matches up with your physical constitution and stuff like that, like, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't be able, well, I probably could be a pilot, but at the time they were pretty strict on the whole eyesight thing. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so but it, that wasn't anything that I wanted to do. Um, but yeah, so I chose nursing because I figured like, okay, that, and plus my mother always told me to try it because she's also a nurse. So I'm like, I'm coming from like a history of like um, uh, medical, everyone's in my family is like in the medical field. So there is that history of that. And so I figured at the time I was young, I was like, okay, I think it sounds good. It, you know, maybe I would like it too. Um but I quickly came to find out that nursing, even though I don't mind doing it, it's just not for me. And I um, also found out that the army wasn't something that I was going to make a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I quickly found I had sort of different ambitions. Mm-hmm. Um, can we just I cover th- as well, like just you, so you spent some time in Afghanistan as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Can, can you just talk a little bit about what that was like as well and, and anything that really formed your experience of being over there? yeah okay so i know there's some things i can't talk about but i'm gonna try to talk about things that i can talk about um so i i managed to get um very close to the afghani um interpreters Mm -hmm. and at the time i was muslim Mm -hmm. and so this kind of really shaped my experience completely um, it was a very unique one because I think that was the first time I was able to do Ramadan as a Muslim ever in Afghanistan with um, the Afghani interpreters, um, which was a, a great experience. But at the same time, it was you know very hot. I probably shouldn't have been fasting <laughs> because the fasting, I don't know if you know, but the fasting requires not only withstanding from food, abstaining from food but also abstaining from water mm-hmm. until sunset so in, is it from sunrise to sunset yeah yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i'm abstaining from water as well like the entire day wow. um so i have to drink the majority of my water between <coughs> you know before sun before sunrise and then after mm-hmm. the sun has set um, mm-hmm. so that, that i thought that was a very unique experience that i had um, and it was very, um, it was very hard. <laughs> I'm not going to joke, like doing a whole, I think a whole month of that was mm-hmm. probably the hardest thing I've ever done, but I'm very proud that I did it. Um, it taught me a lot about myself in the sense that I, you could say I saw how ugly I was in the inside, which is not something that. A lot of people just like, I guess, openly acknowledge. 
<laughs> you know, um, when you have to sort of abstain from these certain actions and things to sort of maintain the, because like Ramadan isn't also just fasting physically. It's it's fasting um, from the things that you typically do. Um, you know, it's 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 a it's a spiritual fasting. Also, the kind of behaviors that you use to distract yourself from feeling the discomfort yeah, uh, exactly. of, mm -hmm. of whatever it is or your addictions or something like that, which allows mm -hmm. all the un unknown stuff to surface, right? Because we can't just go to the screen or whatever it is when to distract yeah. yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, it was it just a month? I actually thought I thought I had this idea that it was 40 days in my head, but is it just a month? Um, I want to say it's, uh, it's I want to say it's about 40. I'm not entirely right. sure because you you have to follow like this um, the Islamic calendar, so it's completely different from like a okay. normal days. But yeah, I, I would say give or take thirty or forty days. Yeah. It seems. Okay. Um, now the rest of my deployment, you could say, um, I, I worked as a I was a part of a surgical small surgical team essentially. Um, so anybody that would come in that would be hurt, we would have to take in and, and, um, you know, if they required some surgery, we would, I would help in that situation or if there was some type of emergencies, you know, we would be basically an emergency room and a surgical room at the same time. That's mm -hmm. to kind of summarize what that was. Mm -hmm. Um, I can say thankfully that I didn't have anything sort of traumatic happen. I was always fully aware that all those things could happen. I was definitely in what they would consider a combat zone. Um, and I was definitely moving, I think within my time in Afghanistan, I moved at least four times. Um, so there's always at risk something could happen. Um, but, I, but I think that was also the time when COVID hit. So it also caused like a, a great stagnation. I, we weren't really getting a lot of patients and I'm always actually very thankful for the idea, but there is that space of just like, well, then you don't know what to do with yourself. <laughs> and I think that's where the, the problem of deployment comes in is that you are always sort of confronting yourself, mm -hmm. either through the loneliness or through others, meaning like there's just, you know, you're getting so close together, but at the same time, you're getting irritated, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Um, I can certainly so imagine I, like being on that kind of fast and then having to also be in a stressful situation, like an emergency mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of uh, room with medical people coming in. And that, that, that's really, you, you probably get to know yourself and the people around you in a, mm -hmm. in a different way as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then really interesting COVID. Yeah. I never, you never think about it, but yeah, I guess war, the war slowed down there as well. I saw pictures as well. I mentioned to you, I've been kind of like looking at some of this. Mm -hmm stuff that's been happening in Afghanistan as well, like pictures with like all the Americans and Afghanistan's Afghanis meeting and all the Americans are like wearing these masks. And <laughs> I guess the Afghans must have thought this looks this looks strange. <laughs> these weird people. Yeah. I, I assume the locals there didn't care that much about COVID. I I think yeah it's it's hard. I don't mean it's hard to say. I mean mm -hmm. I had some of the Afghani interpreters like um family members die from COVID. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think they were like, I guess, educated enough about how COVID actually works, how COVID functions. Um, there was like this one concerning point um, where the, the Afghan interpreters were telling me that somebody 
in their village had sort of found the cure for COVID. <laughs> I was like, really? Um, and it was crazy because he showed me like the, the YouTube videos of this guy claiming that he found the cure for COVID. And it was so insane because I saw literally videos of people like lining up at this guy's house, just like so many of them. And I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, if this guy doesn't actually have the cure, then these people are going to get all infected and possibly die. Um, interesting. Yeah, that was, you know, an interesting part. Um, okay. But the... Can I go back to just so, so yeah, mm -hmm. I actually wasn't aware that you, that you had been Muslim yourself. So, so mm -hmm. can, can you say where, where did that come from? And, and then you, and what... What was it about Islam that 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 you were attracted to? Uh, and then I, I assume you've also stopped, right? So or that you you're no yeah, longer yeah, yeah. Consider yourself Muslim, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Were you Muslim before you went to Afghanistan? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that sort of culminated in this idea. All I can say is that <laughs> ever since I joined the army. Um, you could say I was Christian nominally. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think it really sort of hit, I really hit like this real point of like, um, you could say I really felt the nihilism going on. <laughs> Where I remember at one point I thought, I had really, um, I was in my barracks room and I was really thinking for a moment about ending my life. Um, and then for some reason, I sort of took that as like the turning point for some type of change. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I think as I was young, I sort of, I was always like chasing after, you know, certain women. And when they would fail, when it would just sort of kind of, I would fall on my face for these things. Um, I was like, there's just got to be something more. Um, is there something I'm obviously missing something? I'm obviously not understanding something. Um, and I sort of went on search for that. Um, and so I had started um, looking into Buddhism and, and Buddhism I was actually relatively content with. I think the problem was that I was so content with it that I was still like not understanding something. <laughs> um, and then I had I'd gone into Hinduism and stuff. And um, finally, uh, I think some girl on Instagram messaged me. She said, if you're looking into religions, I hope you at least look into Islam before you um, consider anything. And I didn't even know what that was. I totally forgot that it was even a religion. Um, I was, at first I thought maybe Muslim was the religion. I, I didn't know, I, I didn't know anything. Um, and I think for the first time I had opened the Quran and it just felt like it read like the Bible to me. So it was very weird and at the same time, um, a little scary because I was like, oh my gosh, am I, am I gonna, go back to believing in hell and heaven again like I just I just can't do this uh, you know I I went into Buddhism Hinduism just so I wouldn't have to consider heaven and hell again <laughs> um, but I think what was about Islam was that it's sort of I don't know it it, it was just fascinating to me um, it was fascinating to me in terms of that there was different stories in the Quran um, there was stories about Jesus that I've never heard of before um, like, for example, there's a, there's a passage in the Quran where Jesus talks as a baby mm -hmm. um, or Jesus um, sort of um, does this thing where he takes, uh, I think, was it clay and he turns them to birds 
like this this is like in, in the Quran and I'm like this is just fascinating I've you know I've never heard these stories before um and uh you know the stories about Moses that I've never heard before like I think one of my favorite is like Moses and Kader I think um which is just absolutely amazing I I would probably talk a whole video about it how, how amazing that's sort of like parable story is can you give us a short um, version of it because I, I haven't heard it okay so yeah the the short version of it is like basically i guess moses like, they give some context in the quran but they're saying that moses claimed that he was the wisest like of them all and sort of like god sort of kind of doesn't like when he did that and he says well i will show you somebody that is wiser than you and so basically he ends up fighting this man named um Kader, and Kader keeps telling him that he won't have the patience to bear with what I know. And Moses constantly pleads that what he knows. But um, anyways, he they go through like a series of like um, things that Kader does. And it's like insane. Like he he like, you know, uh, puts a hole in a boat. He kills a child. He, um, you know, just does these weird things. And it isn't until the end of the parable that it sort of explains the foreknowledge that Kadir had. Like, for example, um, the, he plucks the hole in the boat because actually there was a king that was sort of seizing all the good boats. Mm -hmm. And so that sort of prevented the, uh, the king from like taking the good boat because it was already damaged. Mm -hmm. um, and, and apparently the kid was like going to be like um, this horrible monster and like sinner and stuff and, right, you know, rain havoc on the parents and stuff. So... Uh, stuff like that so it, it was like a very fascinating um mm -hmm. story uh, about this sort of kind of saying something it, about how yeah how how complex reality is and and how we <laughs> yeah. think we can figure it all out rationally and therefore be good mm -hmm. but there's a divine element which you know i guess from especially judeo-christian or abrahamic religions believe like there's a there's a there's a there's a divine order to things um which we don't always understand, but there, there's yeah. something else that's in control, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think for me, like Kader really sort of nails it on the head of like this idea of like beyond good and evil that you couldn't like necessarily pin down. Cause if we saw anybody doing this, we'd be like, this is ridiculous. This, this man's obviously horrible. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? uh, I just heard a Russian author. There's a book called Laurus. Uh, the guy's name is Eugene. Then some Russian surname. It's a fantastic book, but I heard him telling a story about like a, uh, there was a a, a, um, a bus driver who was drunk all the time, drunk, driving his bus, and then and then a priest who took his bus regularly or something like that. Uh, and um, the, they both die, and then they kind of both go to paradise. And then in paradise, the priest is like, "Hey, God, like, what, what's this bus driver doing here? This guy was just drunk constantly, and like, you know, he even has like a better mansion than me or something like that, right, or whatever." And so God says, well, you know, when, during your sermons, you know, because he was saying, like, yeah, I preached and I really like, you know, I studied your word and stuff like that. And this guy, he was just drunk. And like, so he said, well, you know, during your surnames, the sermons, then everybody was just falling asleep while while this guy was driving his bus. Like they made it to the destination or not, like they were praying the whole way. <laughs> so he, he got people praying far more than you did with all of your preaching as well. So, yeah, something about how. Um, it's strange how these things work out sometimes as well. Yeah. And, and I can say like my, my own, my own spiritual journey has been gone through lots of little twists and turns. One could say of like some rather unlikely places. Mm -hmm.
mm. which were necessary for me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to get there, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, to, to, to kind of continue, um, mm -hmm. I went to the mosque for the first time. I got curious enough to go to a mosque for the first time. And it was just a, a bewildering experience. You know, there's no seats. It was just mm -hmm. carpet. Um, people were praying. Um, I had felt inspired enough that I decided to pray with them for the first time without really even knowing what I was doing or how it all works. Um, but I thought it was always sort of good to sort of involve myself in the movements and sort of uh, the experience really. Um, and I think I, I converted that day ironically. Um, and I remember the guy sort of, you know, sort of like swearing myself in, you know, he's saying that, you know, Jesus, you must accept Jesus as a prophet and so on and so on and so forth. And at mm -hmm. the time I was just like, uh, I was like, I had no problems with, you know, accepting Jesus as a prophet. I think I, you probably say I didn't have enough uh, strong enough Christianity or, you know, anything to be like, Oh, that's, that seems very un no, <laughs> you know, that just seems very uncomfortable for me. Um, but at the time I, I felt very comfortable with accepting you know, Jesus as a prophet, but it, I, I do think that it sort of gave um, a sort of very interesting view of Jesus where I sort of entertained just Jesus as a prophet. Um, and then there was this whole idea of Muhammad going on too which was, you know, all these other stories that were fascinating to me. Um, but yeah, uh, I think you could say deployment sort of made me really, I, I guess the best way to put it is I wrestled with God the entire deployment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, COVID gave you that time to wrestle with God, you could say. Because mm -hmm. um, I think I was quarantined in my room for like about a month um, where I would just, it was just me in this room by myself Wow. And the only food that I would get would be the food that they would put at my door. And that was it. That was the only contact that I had. That was the only mm -hmm. social interaction that I had. Um, so it was literally just me and, you know, wrestling with God and my sort of own passions and demons and everything else. Um, and I, you know, I, I think in some ways I sort of realized that Islam wasn't for me. And I, it took me a while to sort of get past that because um, I'm not really comfortable saying that term sort of like, Oh, this religion isn't for me. Um, so it gave me a sort of different perspective about how I approach religion. Um, but also I think the one benefit was that I could leave a religion without having any bitter taste towards it. And I think what I needed now in some ways was to reapproach Christianity or, or something else. But I think Christianity was a specific kind of factor where I was like, you know, maybe there is a part of me that's a little bitter towards Christianity. And so I think that reapproaching and sort of relearning um, sort of opened my eyes. Um, I think reading like C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, very basic, very basic book, but beautifully done. Um, I think some of the arguments he poses there are probably still valid. I think actually some of the new atheists would have to sort of answer what the simple arguments that uh, C.S. Lewis put down. I, I think they're sort of very fascinating. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think trying to see the beauty and um, in religion again, because I, I didn't want to be um, sort of resentful about a specific religion or sort of hateful in some ways. Because I think if someone is sort of hateful or resentful about a specific religion, 
I, in fact, believe that they're still very much a part of that religion. Mm. You know, I think I read once on Twitter that atheism is a denomination of Christianity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think there's definitely some part, some truth to that. Yeah, it's certainly like the new atheist rationalist movement. I think one could certainly make a very strong case for that being a nested system of thought within that developed out of the Catholic Church, basically. Right? Like, I don't think it would mm. be possible outside of that. So. Or at least not in its specific form. You can trace the history of ideas back where they came from, and it, it kind of like there's this, you know, budding and, and growth uh, stretching mm-hmm. out. Um, yeah. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. That, well, thanks for that's yeah, f- fascinating. What and, and that that process in your in your room by yourself for a month, mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh, being in a foreign country, um, mm-hmm. and that that sounds like. You know, one of the things that I think that we're faced with today is just like just the continuous distraction uh, and and just things happening, especially living. You know, I just recently a year and a half ago moved out to the countryside, but and just like noticing how how suddenly there's so much peace and how 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 suddenly like now when I go back to the city, I just feel totally overwhelmed by the bombardment. Sorry, this is my wife calling. Um, I put that on. but yeah, the constant bombardment from the city, right? Of, of just like, just the advertising, like in your face all the time, right? And here, like out in this town, there's, there's no advertising. There's a little shop down the road uh, where you can see a couple of little adverts outside. But, but like, it's very, it's just, we, we've, we, I'm exhausted if I have to spend a day in Copenhagen these days. Um, and and so, so the fact that you got to spend a month thinking about what's really important, like, you know, what is it that's at the top of my hierarchy of being, you know, or hierarchy of value that I want to orientate my life towards and getting really serious about that. I, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's not something that's enjoyable, but I think it's probably something that's very valuable. Right. Um, can I ask what it was that when you said like Islam isn't for me, like, was there something specific about it or what do you think? Um, I think it was, I think, I think it actually, I, to be honest, I think it demanded too much from me. Um, you know, five prayers every day. Not only you had to do five prayers every day, but you had to do, um, you know, the sort of um, ritual, um, sort of, I guess, like bathing. Like it was called like wudu. You know, you sort of dip your hands in the water and then you, you know, you do it on your face and then your, your arms and then your, your legs. You sort of just, you know, gently just do the water on your, your body um, before prayer. I mean, it, very, it, it definitely taught me the discipline of mm-hmm. prayer. It taught me how to pray. I think that was something that I never got um, adjusted. Well, I, you could say that I felt there was something weird about the way I was raised. Um, you know, my mother just sort of said, well, just, you know, you hold your hands together and you just pray. Um, but it, it, just, it just felt, um, I don't know, it, it felt like something was missing. I was like, I was like not taught how to pray. And I, and I did like this idea of that there was some type of movement, some type of way to pray. But I also found that, that that way of praying comes with a danger. It comes with a danger of just falling into sort of pure mechanical praying. Like you're just doing the movements. You're not actually praying. And of course, Islam acknowledges this. It sort of tells you that, you know, you need to, the importance of prayer is the very intent of that prayer. Um, but I think it consumed me in the, the other way around, where I started easily facing the emptiness of that mechanical sort of doing of the prayers um and i didn't and i couldn't find my way out of it i couldn't find my way out of it 
Um, and I think also sort of saying the prayers in Arabic sort of um, caused a lot of um, disembodied praying. You know, even though I had memorized the prayers in Arabic, there was still this idea that it, you know, it just wasn't my language. Um, so it, it felt very disembodied. And, and on top of that, um, as a sort of convert in Islam, right, it is very hard to find a Muslim woman because a lot of Muslim families want men that are within their language and culture. So, yeah, being somebody that's out of that jurisdiction makes it very difficult, makes it very difficult to, you know, sort of be a part of the Islamic obligations and stuff. And I, I think that was kind of all those things sort of culminated in my decision to leave, I want to say. Um, but perhaps I still, I still believe there might have been something more, something more that I can't even really explain as such. But... <laughs> But it really gave me the beauty of Islam and, and the art and the Quran and everything else. I, I think it I think if people sort of learned the way I did, it, it would really shed light on some of the, the misinterpretations and the, the mis ideas that they have about Islam. And I've had enough interaction with some Muslim women to say it's it's not it, it Islam cannot be generalized the way it is usually generalized. Um it's very different across all cultures. Um, I think that's very important to acknowledge um, that. Sorry, uh, uh, Paul, you're, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah. Um, would, would you say, so, I mean, you know, I've lived in Egypt for nine months. Uh, I never went into an, a Muslim community at all. So I, I, I certainly haven't been immer as immersed as you have. Uh, I'd also say actually my, my experience was considerably more negative uh, of, uh, of that you know the that idea or the culture around it um and you know so so i don't i don't know what what would you say to like kind of you know i've seen and i've also seen statistics such as you know um a very large percentage or majority of of muslims you know believe in the establishment of sharia law or maybe not a very large but like a majority of muslims believe in sharia law and um kind of like you know the establishment of a caliphate and um that these things are integrated and, and you know the, the portrayal of women in the Quran um you know with Muhammad having you know young girls as or yeah a young girl as a kind of sex slave this kind of thing and you just you know looking also at the treatment of women in those societies you know just seeing what what it's like being a woman in Afghanistan do you feel that that's also very much represent, misrepresented or do you think those are, 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 are also real issues in the religion itself? Are they systemic or, or what? I think they're real issues. Um, but I think the problem is that I think people have a hard time distinguishing between like cultural misogyny and misogyny that is apparently attributed to religion. Mm -hmm. Um also, I mean, a lot of it's, I, I could put it this way, that a lot of the notion of Islamic women is that a lot of the sort of typical, like, for example, the hijab, right? The hijab for uh, maybe like us can look as something like oppressive and something and that might, it, can, it can be depicted as oppressive. Mm -hmm. um, but really the the notion of hijab was supposed to be that women that wear the hijab sort of represent 
the the piety they have towards God. That's it. There's really nothing else. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem that we get is that it's the means, but unfortunately, there's a lot of people within that religion that sort of abuse the 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 means and make it an end. For example, like you're supposed to respect me because I'm your husband and so on and so on. But actually, the whole point of husband and wife is that the reason why they function the way they function and in, in sort of different ways is that everything is supposed to be aimed towards God. The man is always supposed to behave towards the woman as sort of towards God. Um, but that easily gets, you know, not, I mean, you know, not everybody sort of behave towards God and sort of behave towards their desires. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that Islam is sort of culturally different like, for example, you're going to find a different Islam in, in, in Egypt. You're going to find a different Islam in Africa. You're going to find a different Islam in America. You're going to find a different Islam in so many different cultural areas mm -hmm. that you could say wherever you, depending on where you go, you could say um, this is what Islam is. Um, and that's sort of the trouble. It's this. It's picking apart between the cultural and the Islam. And I think sometimes the culture has penetrated so much of Islam that mm -hmm. the people that sort of get born into it can no longer distinguish what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And I think me as a person sort of coming into the religion um, shows how, like, if you're taught the right way in some ways, and, and lucky I had, 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 had good, good Muslims that sort of showed me, you know, what, what it would mean and what it is, mm -hmm. is that um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of misrepresentation. Now the, the, the prophet and, and, and the child thing that, that is sort of, um, I guess it just depends what is the satisfactory answer for, for some people. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, it was just a very like historical example of just like, you know, actually a lot of, you know, even if we look back at America and like, I think, was it, um, I don't know, past, I think it's further back than the 1800s or something. Um, where you know you could marry a child that was like 10 or 11 or something of that sort mary was probably um, around 12 years old when she married joseph or when she was married to joseph as well like that was the normal for norm for the time yeah 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 and and, and that's typically but again it, it's it, it may not be a satisfactory answer for some people and it's totally understandable um for me for me yeah for me it was historically it was it was fine i, I understood that historically they did that um yeah. Uh, I think, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I think Christianity is the same in that, like, if you look in every different country, there's, you know, Christianity is very adaptable and very changeable. Um, I think the view that I've seen in the Orthodox Church, you know, so I'm a member of the Orthodox Church is, is that Islam is, it's, it's really kind of like a Christian heresy, or I think I heard someone explain, like, it's, it's kind of like you take all the Christian heresies, put them in one package, and, and then, then you could kind of come out with Islam. You know, the idea that, that Christ is just a prophet, that's not, a, that's not something new with Islam, right? There was many Christian sects. Uh, I think Arianism was the first major heresy that was condemned at the, the Council of Nicaea. But that was basically saying that, you know, Christ was, you know, there's only more the son of God than he, than he was God. Uh, and, and so he was subordinate. He was a creation, not part of um, like, so in Christianity, you believe like Christ is, is uncreated. He's the kind of, you know, the first, the unmoved mover or something like that, or part of that Trinity, right? Um, so, 
So, yeah, but I, I think you're right that there's a lot of misunderstanding. And I think a lot of it is based on judging past times through um, kind of today's uh, standards, which mm -hmm. I, I think that, that leads to just total misunderstanding of the entire importance mm -hmm. of religion that, and the function of religion in society and the way that it worked. And, you know, we look at practices like sacrifice and we think like, oh, that's completely insane and crazy. But actually we're doing the same thing in just weird and other dysfunctional and conscious ways uh, mm -hmm. ourselves in, in, in other areas of our lives. Um, but, uh, you know, I personally, I would also, mm, I, I do have a, you know, I, as I said, I know less about Islam, but I, I do have a, a skepticism towards it. Mm -hmm. And I can also really appreciate how it's grounded in practice, you know? So when, when you spoke about like getting into the the mosque there and there was no seats <laughs> and that's something that so when i first came into a christian an orthodox christian church then the same thing there's no seats yeah. uh and and so you know and 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 this is really a product i when i look at it now i see really like you know western christianity it's all just about your like speaking to people's heads so you you get everybody seated down in these things and then you entertain them with like some kind of concert up on a stage and then you then entertain them with a lecture by a charismatic speaker uh, and it's all just like trying to speak to their head but you their their bodies are totally passive there um, so in an Orthodox church, you're also standing up for, you know, up to two, three hours. Sometimes you're doing prostrations um, and, you know, which I think a lot of people think, oh, like when you're prostrating and you know, putting your head down to the ground, like this is a Muslim thing. But actually this was a Christian practice long before it was a Muslim practice. It's just that we, we stopped doing it in, in, in the West, um, but it's, yeah. it's still a, an integral part of, of Orthodox practice as well. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, so yeah, there's this kind of grounding in practice. My wife wears head covering when, when we're in church and when we pray together as a family as well. We have morning prayers, evening prayers every single day, and, and she wears a, a head covering on her head because this is again seen as um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a biblical principle as well. And for me, it has a very practical thing, uh, which I think can also again be misrepresented. You know, we live in a culture where women should be like welcome to dress as sexily and you know as, as provocatively as they as they want in every single circumstance also in the workplace uh, i work for several years uh, for a very large multicultural multi multinational corporation um where uh, a woman there at my work would come through a, a, with a completely see-through uh top no bra <laughs> uh in kind of like some kind of designer model thing she was very much connected to the, the model world as well and um you just kind of like have to, you just have to accept these things, but it's like, is, you think this is not affecting her boss or, or like her, her, her co-employees co as like you're working with her, right? So it's yeah. like, you know, and like the whole purpose of makeup and, you know, high heels and stuff like that is to increase sexual attraction and men are influenced by this kind of thing, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's like the, this function of like, when you're in a place of spiritual worship that the women cover their hair, well, I notice that when they don't do that, like it draws my attention. Uh, yeah. and so, so the whole purpose of the spiritual practices is, is the focusing of attention on that which is higher and, and training ourselves to control that, that attention. You mentioned this, this function of discipline uh, as yeah. well, right? Which is absolutely mm -hmm. necessary. So I think, I think for me, I really understand this attraction to Islam, which is very much based on just the utter poverty of um, a lot of what goes along by the name of Christianity, which is what I grew up with as well. And what I rejected for my entire adult life until, you know, about four or five years ago uh, in my late thirties, where I, where I suddenly kind of realized like, oh, there's something missing here as well. So. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and, and to kind of give you like an example to sort of echo your point, like a lot of the, you know, a lot of the controversy with Islam, you know, about sort of oppressing women is that when you go in the mosque, a lot of the women will either be separated from the men or sort of pray behind the men. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and for a lot of like maybe a lot of progressive Muslims, they might see like this as sort of like oppressive. But I mean, I, I, I do think if you think about the sort of like the whole point of worship is that and if you think about what Muslims have to do to sort of when they're praying, you know, you have to sort of bend over and and, and, and do all these uh, repetitive acts um, mm -hmm. that, that, you know, I've had I've talked to some Islamic scholars and say, like, you know, that having a woman if you were to sort of line up with other men, it could be distracting to another man if there's a woman sort of bending over in front of you while she's sort of doing the, the acts of prayer. And, and of course, like you should behave, but at the same time, you know, I, th I think a lot of the, the Muslims are sort of wary of this idea of like, I think in my opinion, they really relish in the idea of sort of your sole focus should be the divine and anything that sort of causes that distraction from your from your focus of the divine needs to be sort of deterred needs to be prevented and i think i think the problem with islam is that if we start talking about it in a secular society if you don't believe in a god then you're right islam is just misogynist <laughs> you know if, if there's no point in believing in, in, in that sort of divine element that they believe in mm -hmm. then you know it is misogynist that's it because if you don't believe in a god then what they're doing is pointless. Um, they, they have no, you know, the, the, the women should have no reason to be in the back. But I think also, I think there's a problem in that thinking and sort of saying that if the women are in the back, that sort of says that they are in an inferior position. I'm, I, I got confused about that point of like, if women are in the back, they're in a, like that, that always automatically assumes they're in an inferior position. It could mean and I think another way of interpreting that is it, it could be that men are so weak, they have to be in the front. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, so for example, like if you have friends in a classroom and they're sort of misbehaving, they're always in the back. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to sort of fix that behavior, you have to sort of bring them to the front and sort of separate them. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, I, I, there could be something like that. You know, it, so most Orthodox churches have women on the left, men on the right. Um, really? Uh, that that's the that's what we have in my churches some churches are more far more relaxed about it and so you'll often have people going from one side to the other but certainly like the thing was like doing prostrations directly behind a woman you know that's distracting obviously you know like uh to to you know so 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 yeah that that that's the normal thing and especially you'll see that in in monasteries and stuff like that is is that they'll separate them side by side um but yeah i i think there's a more fundamental point which is also, um, it, you know, hierarchies are a natural way of organizing. I think, I think Islam has a very basic, correct understanding of hierarchy, which is, is that, you know, the masculine principle is that which is above and, and imparts that which is below. Uh, so the, the masculine is what represents heaven and the feminine is that which represents earth. And so the divine is the meeting of heaven and earth, right? And, and this, so this is, a, I think, common to Christianity and, and Islam. And, and, and but, but um there's nothing you know you need heaven and you need earth <laughs> that like this, this is this is an important principle and, and so you know you can't just have one or the other but but you know i think christianity certainly has you know that exact same thing so you know you know christ was a man 
um, the, the greatest human that ever lived was the mother of Christ, which is which was Mary, right? And, and that was a woman. So she is the the highest example of of a human being that we can follow. Uh, what did she do? Well, she said, you know, thy, let thy, let it be done to me according to your will, right? So it was a very humble attitude of submission, um, which is also a central principle, of course, in Islam is this idea of submission to that which is greater, to that which is good, the source of all good, right? So I think it's a it's a beautiful idea that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then, and then you're obviously there's, there's really important distinguished <laughs> differences between Christianity and Islam as well um, about, you know, who Christ was and, and what he did and um, how, I think for me, it's also like the establishment of, of what, what is power on earth? What is authority on earth? And, mm-hmm. and Islam, I would say, would tend to mix kind of secular authority and power with spiritual authority and power whereas um christ you know the last thing he said before he ascended is like you know all authority on heaven and earth is given unto me and but what does that authority look like well you know it it works on a different time scale you know because christ he basically gave himself to be murdered killed by the strongest empire in the entire world um and by doing that actually defeated that empire it it took 400 years right or or 320 years or something like that but then you know took over established himself as as you know the most powerful authority on earth but it took a very long time for for that to happen and and he but he did it through complete complete humility um and 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 complete surrender almost actually so he surrendered himself um yeah to so so it was an act of 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 pure love uh, with no force or or anything like that especially no physical use of force something like that yeah yeah, I mean, I, I think Jesus is probably one of the most interesting, like just characters to just um, like when we look even like at, at the at the Abrahamic faith in general, like Judaism and, and, and Islam, it's it's interesting that, you know, sort of Judaism sort of rejects Jesus. But you could say for Islam, like for the Christian, Islam doesn't go far enough with Jesus, right? It's sort of just Jesus is just a prophet. But then I, I do, I, I will say what I admire about Christianity is that if you understand Christ- Christianity correctly, it teaches you how to embody paradox. Mm-hmm. You know, the very idea of being man, being God. Um, I still love the way Shuan sort of represents, even though he's a perennialist and that may cause some disruption, but I really do love the way Shuan talks about Christianity because the way he talks about Christianity and he and he really pins it down in my opinion why maybe Islam might have a problem with Christianity or why Judaism might have a problem with Christianity is that Christianity is the only religion in the Abrahamic faith that has an esoteric principle that is not hidden it is completely manifest mm-hmm. um where typically you'd have to do some type of, you know, you'd have to know the secrets, um, the more esoteric practices of the religion. But Christianity doesn't have that. Christ- Jesus is, you could say, the esoteric principle that is manifest, that is man and God. And for me, I mean, when I, once I understood this, I thought it was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I mean, this, this breaks down so much um, you could say misrepresentation this this breaks down so much and then also the trinity if you really study it and because you know for a while i think a lot of the muslim arguments convinced me because it was like you know i 
a Muslim could rationally be like, okay, so tell me how, um, I remember watching this, this video on YouTube, the Muslim would say, okay, so you have the Trinity, right? And the, the Christian would be like, okay, yeah. He's like, okay, so the Father divine, the Spirit divine, but Jesus divine and man, he's like, explain to me how they're all co-equal and co-eternal and something like that of that sort. Um, and I was just like, oh, yep, we got him. Um, there's a contradiction there or something like that, <laughs> you know? Um, but after, but anyways, what I learned that is difficult about the Trinity is that it's hard for us to think opposites without negation. Mm -hmm. What the Christianity teaches you is that you can have opposites, but it is distinction, which is very subtle mm -hmm. from negation. It's distinction. And I thought that was such a useful concept and such a beautiful concept this idea of distinction rather than negation of opposites it's very hard to think opposites how do you unite opposites without negation mm -hmm. and i think christianity and the trinity does that it really teaches you how to think through that mm -hmm. but of course most christians you could say just sort of know what the trinity is they say they can just sort of spew out you know some of the just they might the know a little bit of the creed or something like yeah, that right yeah, so they or, might just... or maybe not even that but they have <laughs> yeah, some idea but, of, of like but what... they don't understand the the metaphysical value of that yeah um yeah. and i think or, or just like how incredibly crazy and world-changing everything that christ represents is and how 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 just like you know how how it flipped everything on its head and how when christ first said you know to his disciples like you know unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you have no part in me you know like people were like what the hell is this guy crazy right like like that made no sense and then today we're just like oh yeah we could do this communion thing as christians you know but like that's just like this this you know like it's, it's been sucked dry of all kind of um of its actual meaning for a lot of people we've become blunted to it somehow or something like that. I, 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 don't, I don't really know, but I can, speaking for myself, you know, I, I was completely blunted to the whole of Christianity and, uh, and didn't understand any of the sacredness of it at all. It become like this dry materialist kind of thing that you just had to believe in these set of things like God created the world and, uh, you know, Jesus, he'd walked on water and da, 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 and this kind of stuff. Right. And so there was none of that nuance and complexity um, that I, 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 so when I, when I, as a, when I kind of, you know, was introduced to atheist ideas, then a lot of the time atheists, and I, I imagine it sounds like this Muslim video you had as well. They, they kind of like, you know, they, they contend with very shallow ideas of Christianity in a lot of ways. Right. And then when the, you shoot those down, then it's like, okay, now the whole thing's fallen for you. And so then you, 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 one, one goes into, or, or yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't, I, I don't know. I, it's hard to understand how to bring this back. I think a lot of people have, you mentioned the big, like a long time back or some time back, like some anger towards Christianity. I was very mm -hmm. angry with Christianity for a long time. You know, mm -hmm. I, 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 I went around like telling people why I thought religion and Christianity was like one of the worst things that ever happened to society. And there was no value from it whatsoever and things like that. Right. And so it took me a long time to realize how, how that had yeah, switched yeah. around. Mm -hmm. I, I think, and I think that's why, I, I mean, I, I think that's why I kind of maybe fell into perennialism. Um, like I, I read some of Shuan's stuff just a little bit here and there. And something that he said, like really pointed out to me about like, he's like, if you hate any specific religion, you probably should spend time in that religion. 
Um, and that, I think, and when I realized that, I was like, yeah, I think that's exactly what I've been doing. I've been spending time with just things I, I didn't understand. I mean, it is, it's, it's totally different. Um, and, I, and I think this is what I couldn't accept when I was sort of going through some of the religions was that I couldn't accept just sort of just argumentative um, statements about the other religions or any anything because there's something there was just a gap and, and I couldn't explain but there's just a crucial gap between when I would talk to people that wanted to talk to me about their own religion and, and tell me about it and teach me about it it was it was a completely different experience and 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 even though it's like maybe you couldn't sort out some of the claims about you know well this religion is this way and that's why I'm not in this religion and so on um mm. I've met, uh, you know, I guess you could say I was fortunate to meet a lot of nice Muslims. And I, I remember a, an old Muslim one time pulled me to the side. He said, I just want to let you know that Muslims, even though they try to represent Islam, never truly represent Islam. He's like, I just want to let you know that they will always fall short of that idea, ideal. And so he said, you know, he's like, you just try to do the best Islam that you know. Um, and that and that sort of just that little interaction with that old Muslim man uh, just sort of really shifted my perspective. Uh, it, you know, and, 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 and sometimes there's a, there's a lot of, you know, accusations about Islam. And sometimes I feel motivated to sort of dispend, uh, you know, defend or sort of disperse some of the misrepresentations just because. I, there is still like a love for that religion. And I, I, there's a lot of love that I have for all the other religions as well. But I, I do think um, this, these, some of these misrepresentations cause a lot of havoc and um, hatred that is not always, is not always um, deserved. Mm -hmm. um, so, it's far um, easier to create a collective identity in a group of people by defining an enemy, right? And so people mm -hmm. these days are... I guess people all the time have really needed to, or for various reasons, wanted to establish more strong collective identities. I think right now we see a war going on in Ukraine because people are realizing like, well, there's nothing holding us together anymore. So let's start a war so that we can stick together and like at least have something we can fight against together. So uh, and I, I think that's probably going to continue and we'll, people use all kinds of reasons, you know, ethnicity and religion uh, being core ones uh, that, that they'll use. Uh, I, re I really agree. Like, you know, I think whatever system of faith you're coming in, but certainly I actually just heard an Orthodox priest saying recently, you know, like, what, whatever you come from, then, you know, appreciate all the good that come from that, 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 that's from there. You know, if you look at the history of Christianity, it didn't come in and dominate and destroy pagan religions when it came into Europe or, you know, wherever it came in, it actually just incorporated them. That's why Christianity is full of, you know, like adapted pagan stuff. So there was plenty of stuff, you know, even like, so I live in Denmark, you know, and in Viking mythology, and, you know, Odin was hung on a tree and he was there for three days and he was like, yeah, what do you have? I think he had an eye room. You know, so there's all this kind of like stuff that points towards Christ. There was foreshadowing of Christ everywhere in, in paganism. You'll find Christ-like figures in, in so many different of, of the of pagan stories, right? So, so um, you know, th there's no reason. And, and this is, I think, a part problem with like the modernist, you know, Christianity is, is, is like, uh, if it's not in the Bible, then it's evil and demonic or something like that. Right? It's like, this, this is a, a, a bad misunderstanding. 
Um, I wouldn't go as far. So perennialism, in, in case someone's watching, I mean, I, I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but I understand <laughs> it as like it's you, you're looking for the kind of overarching truth from all religious systems um, I, I, or something like that. And, and you're trying to identify like common threads and shared themes and, and value you can get from all of them. Was that is that a? Um, I mean, a lot of like you could say I, my my current perennialist take is probably not the most probably wouldn't be a popular one and probably would be an unheard of one. Um, I'm constantly forming, reforming the, the perennialist idea. I think a lot of the arguments recently that in my opinion has kind of just been like a waste of time is like, uh, you know, if you, for example, they spend so many years like arguing over like the mystical experience from various religions to sort of like prove that there is this sort of transcendent unity. Um, I'm not in favor of that uh, idea. I don't think that we should be arguing about mystical experiences to sort of prove some type of transcendent anything. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of approach it in the idea of that perennialism doesn't ask you to leave, to leave your religion, that it doesn't ask you to leave your religion at all. Um, but there is this idea that if you sort of become like you could say, if you go through the religion itself, if you go through being the best Christian that you are, being the best um, Buddhist or, or Muslim or someone, there is this idea that is sort of universal. That um, you know, you you could you could say that there is something beyond that. Like I always look at religion as a sort of means to have a relationship with the divine, and if we look at it that way, then. In my opinion, there is a case that can be said that the relationship with the divine is automatically already sort of above or sort of beyond religion itself. But the religion is sort of there to sort of prepare you and sort of cultivate you for those means. Mm -hmm. Now, it's very much the case that not everybody has those means or not everybody is sort of capable of sort of shooting beyond that. And so it is very um, understandable to sort of be either caught up in the like the the exoteric side you know just sort of being like a a regular christian or a regular muslim and just sort of doing the things that you you think is true and 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 divine and and so on and i and i think actually in my opinion you don't have to accept perennialism at all um because in my opinion a lot of religions already have mechanisms that are universal in its place mm -hmm. for example um and for me in my opinion i would call these sort of almost perennial mechanisms but they are inside the religion itself. For example, in Christianity, it's love your neighbor. You don't, loving your neighbor, you know, obviously, it obviously involves, I mean, at least I feel like it involves somebody that's outside of your religion, somebody that doesn't believe in God. So there's already like this universal mechanism within um, Christianity. Um, same thing with um, Buddhism, you know, sort of love all sentient beings, right? This, this sort of cultivating these principles that are sort of universal, um, in my opinion, kind of point to a sort of perennialist idea but um, again, I'm, I'm very cautious about the perennialist idea because I find it very dangerous because what I don't want is I don't want somebody to sort of listen to this and be like, okay, well, if all these religions are from the same source, then I'm just going to, you know, willy nilly pick one and then um, just sort of go about my day. No, there's, there's something. Well, even worse is, is, is kind of create your own personal patchwork of ideas from all kinds of different religions. And then you can use that to rationalize basically anything that you want. Because you what you ultimately then do is you place yourself above all of these religions. And then you, you, you establish the religion of me. 
which is basically the dominant religion of our society as well. So, you know, that's what everything is pointing towards or pushing us towards, at least from the culture these days, right? Um, yeah. Exactly. And, and that's, that is why I'm very much adamant about cannot, we cannot have a cheap universalism. It has to be universalism that requires work. Um, and that's why I always kind of like Shuan, because Shuan was more, you could say, a traditionalist. You, you could not even access the idea of perennialism if you weren't sort of a, already in the religion itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, of course, there's disagreements, but uh, at the same time, what I like about the idea is that, that one, it's not asking you to really to leave your religion. It's sort of kind of doing this, you could say, some type of comparison where it's saying that there is something in common about us all. Um, and of course, the, the most broad common is that we're all humankind, we're all in the likeness of God and so on, um, but that, that interpretation is different. Um, I think a lot of my work has been on the idea of predisposition. Um, I've been taking the notion of predisposition or spiritual disposition kind of very seriously. This is something that the perennialists kind of provoke. You know, there's something about our spiritual predisposition that sort of attracts us to certain things and certain ideas um, about the divine, um, which is something that I'm I'm still trying to work through. I, I, do, I do think there is some credibility to that idea, um, uh, you know, and I, and I do feel like for atheists, and, and you know, I, I do think there is a way out for atheists in the sense of that atheism is already rooted in, you know, the, the atheism was already rooted in Buddhism, right? <laughs> so if you are naturally an atheist, I feel like Buddhism would be, actually be the answer for, for an atheist. Um, I, I also believe there's a strong predisposition in atheism towards just like rebelling against father figures and authority figures so it's like you can also instead of instead of like going to buddhism you can also just like resolve like that you probably have an issue with your dad and if you figure that out then you could probably also figure out like approaching god as well you know and, you know, and it'd probably be even more valuable than just going into you know because buddhism is really just the worship of nothingness or emptiness or something like that right so you just replace a father figure with a with an emptiness figure or something like that i definitely said very simplified basic way i'm sure would provoke a whole lot of buddhists but i mean well, well, it, it, I mean, the, the one thing that's beneficial about Buddhism is that it teaches you this concept of like non-attachment mm-hmm. or what we would call like what St. Francis calls like holy indifference. Yeah. Um, you could say it. So it's that this cultivating of like, and, 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 and this is the part where I still kind of fall into my perennialist tendencies because from my, like in my experience of like a lot of the mystics, a lot of the mystics are not so much entertained about their specific religion they're very much entertained about the divine itself the relationship with the divine Um, and 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 they of course they express it differently but they're just very adamant about that expression um i think was it sholom talks about this idea of conservative mystics and revolutionary mystics the conservative mystics sort of try to maintain and add to the religion itself but the rebellion, uh, the rebellious mystics, you could say they, these are the heretics. Um, and, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about what is the function of heresy um, rather than just sort of just this mere deviation. But I think there is some real function to heresy because for the Jews, Jesus is a, <laughs> is a heretic. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Jewish heretic for the Jews. Um, and then, uh, like as you well, pointed I, out, I guess further. Jews are all, all they're they're confronted with a choice, right? Like, I mean, 
you can look at how much Christ fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament, right? And how modern day Judaism is basically defined as a reaction. Even Jews, like Jewish scholars will confirm, like, you know, modern day Judaism is defined as a reaction against Christ, actually, you know, so they've like tried to find a way of, of defining themselves, but it's still, you know, based on, on, on those ideas. So anyway, Okay, I want to I want to bring things a little bit together now because mm -hmm. we're that we we've gone on uh, for for a good deal, um, so yeah, I mean I, I thought it's really fascinating. You know, you so you you're working as a medical secretary, you're going back to school. I, I saw some about plants and wanting to wanting to stop this kind of like you know this swinging back and forth of like treatments and counter treatment kind of thing and and, and find a, a natural way um and then I, I think that's mirrored maybe a little bit in our conversation here um about trying to bring together and, and certainly you're on on this journey as well right so of, mm -hmm. of uh um yeah it, i don't know what how would you how would what what, what would be a, could you see a parallel there in in what you're wanting to study and what you're look ser searching for with your spiritual search. So I don't know if I'm pushing too hard now for some kind of metaphor. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, I was, you know, I was thinking about, you know, your whole concept about this idea of like life and transition. And mm -hmm. I, I, I really did have a crisis with my own identity. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, you know, I, I got obsessed with like Carl Jung and, and I tried to, you know, find myself and through do this shadow work and so on. Um, you could say I sort of fell into the sort of pop Jungian psychology that Instagram and Facebook sort of um, just screams from above. And this, this is what I know Cadell hates uh, about sort of the Jungian uh, notions. But um, mm -hmm. anyways, yeah, I, I, I feel I actually, what sort of, healed my psychotic like breakdown of my identity was that I read this poem from um, Emily Dickinson where she just said she's like who am I I am nothing and then you know the, the poem just continues about how she's nothing she's no one and and that you actually shouldn't tell anybody that you're no one um, because the moment that you tell somebody that you're no one you actually are already identifying yourself you're already throwing some identity um, and I think this has just been a metaphor for the, the rest of my life um, and, and going to transition where I'm constantly confronting the death of my own self. And I think studying religions and sort of going through these phases of my life is that I'm always ready to encounter a new death of God, so to speak. That any, um, I think this is perhaps, I mean, there's always argument against it, but my personal experience is that studying different religions, going through transitions, is that whatever concept of God that I have has always been ready on the table to die. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not going to act like that's easy. It, it has been very difficult. It has been hard to swallow some concepts that I just want to disagree with. Um, I've really put myself in a position where anytime I have a certain conception of God is just ready for its slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. um, um, and, and, and this has completely shaped me in my opinion that, you know, it, it, you could say it's almost like a little Nietzschean kind of notion where it's like the moment I value something, I get ready to sort of know that it's a void of also a value. Um, but it, it's funny that, you know, you could talk about this sort of nihilistic tendency, but at the same time, this sort of process of going through the death of God constantly and, and changing your concepts and ideas is that actually this is the value in itself. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and I mean, one you, one can look at that as a nihilistic Nietzschean concept, but one can also just see it as, well, this is the definition that Christians have always had of God, actually. And so I think actually the connection that Cadell, that I heard you guys talking with my talk from Cadell was me quoting, uh, I think this comes from St. Maximus the Confessor, but it even goes further back. St. John of Damascus also said this, this is in the second century, um, where basically they say, I think the quote is something along the lines of like, you know, any... It would be better to say that God does not exist because any definition of God would place him in the realm of things, you know, which he does not, he does not inhabit that realm at all. So it, it's actually more accurate to say in that, in that way, it's think of God as a, within a kind of, you know, so this is called the apoph apophatic def definition, right? Which is also not seen as contradictory to the cagophatic definition, which, you know, giving God all kinds of qualities. And I, I think Jordan Peterson does an amazing job at like, you know, giving all kinds of concepts of God. But at the end of the day, like all of them need to dissolve because as you say, like, you know, we need to be able to sacrifice these ideas all the time because none of them are, are at all able to encapture an experience, a proper experience of the divine, right? Our, our language is always going to fall short, but, but without that belief. And I think it's fascinating, you know, when you said like, you know, you're, you, you had that experience of like, you were in your barracks and you're just, thinking of taking your own life and mm. it's like there's got to be something more to this and mm. um yeah yeah i i think i think that we i i certainly can see how i filled up my life the more i could feel that feeling lurking underneath the surface then i i felt that was my life with more and more and more stuff um and 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 then i uh, yeah at some time it, it kind of caught up with me as well and then i, I needed to deal with it Something like yeah that. and it, and i think this is some of my own work that I've done. I've actually done some work on some, some written work on like suicide, like on my own, like Substack and stuff, because I, I've personally experienced and I, the, the biggest problems in the army was suicide, you know, suicide and then and, and other really? stuff. But yeah, suicide is very prominent in the army and the army is trying to do things to solve it. But I think with myself, I found that it was, it was this notion of, who I thought I was and that and when I would confront the idea that it was transient it was horrifying really like you know you could say you, you're encountering this void this nothingness um, and it's frightening but what I found was that I think I mean at least this is my current interpretation of suicide and it's not a I don't want to generalize it because I know there can be some real illnesses that can, can, that can contribute to the idea of suicide. But mm -hmm. I want to say that I think it's the notion that we have of ourselves um, and that suicide, if we look at it as a mechanism that sort of begs, we could say, redemption or sort of begs a rebirth. I think one of my favorite sayings that a psychologist said, it said, when you say that you want to kill yourself, what part of you wants to die? And I think that really, really, really brought it into perspective for me, because I think suicide as a mechanism actually functions in that way. It is actually asking you what parts of you wants to die, what parts of you already wants to sort of go through this rebirth. Mm -hmm. um, and okay. sort of, yeah, that's a fascinating um, idea, because I mean, you know, so basically the, the model that Christ set was self-sacrifice <laughs> it was self-sacrifice right but it, it's a, it, it's in a metaphysical sense uh i guess to a certain extent but it's also in a very practical sense of, of self-sacrifice and so seeing 
one could say suicide is in some ways a reaction against a culture which says no no it's all about just like feeding yourself and 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 it's all about like loving yourself or something like that right that's the key to everything like that it's like and and, and I, I think you know there's a there's something about self-acceptance i think um i i think that needs to go along with self-sacrifice you know you can't but but when people talk these days about self-love uh, for me, it, it, it's just, it doesn't work. Love is an irrational driving towards something. It's eros, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. this kind of like completely passionate. So if you, if you turn that towards yourself, it, for me, that's a short circuiting of, of, of what's a natural, you know, ultimately when one should love God, right? Then, then that'll drive you higher towards the heavens. This is like the Plato's idea of like, you know, the chariot being driven up towards the heavens. And, and, and so I think that when I think you, you do self-love, then I think then, then there's something inside of you that knows like no self-sacrifice so it's that that's the right way of being so maybe you're right that i i is it a new thing that that the army has this problem with suicide or has this always existed in militaries do you know more about that actually i I can't say i can't say that much for the history but i mean i want to say it feels more prominent now Mm -hmm. but it could just be like you know technology and sort of our you know sort of how everything is sort of universally communicated now um but yeah it, it seems prominent and I think that's why I did this sort of spiritual turn because I mean if I if I wanted if I was going to be honest I, if I didn't have that I probably would have a drinking problem I would uh you know I I, I don't know how I would have turned out I just I just know that it wouldn't have been good um and it you know I'm not gonna lie a lot of people that I was with and I'm you know that I feel like my comrades, you know, they drink a lot, <laughs> you know, they, they drink a lot. They don't uh, know how to handle certain things. Uh, they don't know what to do. And I, and I think the moment they come across a sort of identity crisis, uh, you know, the only logical point or step is suicide. And even mm-hmm. veterans suffer this idea as well. I mean, it's a big identity crisis. If you become a veteran, you, you don't have your, support system anymore you, you just you're done um and it's just not the same the civilians can't relate to your lingo and your language they don't know the experience that you've had um and you could say this for me this foundation that i have of you know theology and so on it, it has really um solidified my um identity in in terms of like i can always let go of my identity and let it die it's okay you know <laughs> i i can do this because the object of my identity that you could say my identity is predicated on the object of my worship. Mm-hmm. And I got this idea ironically from Freud, where he talks about how the libido always attaches itself to an object and that this object can be so invested in the libido mm-hmm. that the object actually can momentarily replace your ego. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is, this is beautiful. I mean, this is perfect. I mean, it, it, it shows how easily nihilism, is a it could, you could fall into nihilism, right? You yeah. could say nihilism is predicated nihilism on the worship the of, of of the abbess or something like that, right? Yeah, you could say nihilism is predicated on the object of your worship because you can see how void, how valueless it really is. And the only thing that sustained me was God, mm-hmm. really. That that was the, that was the only source that I could find that didn't just like completely annihilate me. It felt like you know. <laughs> I mean, it annihilated me, but it annihilated me in a good way. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. 
yeah, death is inevitable. It's just how you go about it. Uh, and if you try and, what does Christ say? That if you will keep your life, uh, then you will lose it. And if you will lose your life for my sake, then you will gain it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah beautiful idea. Okay, Kevia, thank you very much. That's been a fantastic conversation. It's gone on longer than I promised or <laughs> intended as well. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that. So thanks so much. Um, and really appreciate you coming on and, and, and sharing openly and honestly. Um, I'm going to put the link for uh, your channel uh, on, on, on the description for this video. Um, do you want to, yeah, and, and anything else that you want to, that where people can find you, check you out, or anything like that? Um, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, that's it. I mean, it's just Javier Rivera. And, yeah. you know, I talk about perennialism stuff, my new formulations of perennialism or, yeah. you know, my Ibn Rabi book club that I run. And that's, those are some interesting ideas from an Islamic mystic thinker. So, um, yeah, if people are interested in that, they can watch it. And other than that, I have some other stuff. I do some dating philosophy, um, YouTube stuff. I think that's initially what Cadell, attracted Cadell to me. <laughs> the, date, the dating philosophy? Yeah, 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 because I was showing like how void, um, you know, the dating life is, and uh, yeah, give give us a little teaser on your dating philosophy, like a little, what are your ground principles well, that you're using to engage with that, and then we'll leave it for there as a little, <laughs> a little advert for or a teaser for people who might want to go check it out. So one of my favorite things to sort of like conceptualize when we talk about you know dating and sort of like falling in love is that we approach dating already from a, a notion of lack, correct? But all of a sudden, when we start engaging with the person, all of a sudden we start feeling like fulfilled and stuff. But it doesn't make any sense because we were both empty sort of vessels when we met each other. How is it that all of a sudden that we're not lacking? And sort of I do this sort of philosophical exploration where I'm saying that actually there's no way that it is possible that we actually possess love in itself. Um, it's, it's just not possible um, because we're already the way we meet each other is this lacking. Um, and and we just don't know how to sort of confront that lacking and, and what we what we do with it. And, and that's why I do very much like the Christian notion of the idea that love is not this sort of um, just emotion. It, it, it is this act of the will. Um, mm -hmm. And, and there's something to be said about that and, and sort of commitment. And I've also been working on ideas about this idea of like indifference, where a lot of people, when we try to date, we try to find more commonality than difference. We don't like difference. We sort of feel very resistance against difference, but actually to be in difference is, is that actually healthy relationship with difference. Um, and that's some of my like thinking and that, that's some of what, you know, what Cadell got attracted to is this idea of the sort of uh, us being in difference um, and, and sort of um, know that we are lacking individuals and, um, there's no way that it's possible that I can get my soul satisfaction from my partner because she herself is also lacking. So how is it that, you know, where is this actual satisfaction coming from? And so it, it really points to, you know, uh, it's very hard for me not to point to theology and, and some type of divine thing at that point. Um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah. I have no idea how people make relationships work without having the divine in their relationship like i'm like amazed by those people that they could because me and my wife we would never manage it without like you know we we, we both of us we you know we, we say like god is in our relationship like you know that that need, he needs to be there otherwise 
Mm -hmm. you know, there needs to be a concept of something higher because if you're just two people looking at each other like this and trying to get closer to each other it's not going to work because it's just you it's just two different completely different people that they we can't actually approach each other but but when when we look upwards like then then we can like get close to each other that way right by, mm -hmm. by agreeing on well what's up here and that that's long conversations about the details of it right like what is it that you're actually trying to head towards and if we can envision that future together then then we can move towards it as well and, and and that's why I feel like some of the feminist critiques against Christianity really fall short because I'm like, okay, we have to be really, really careful here because Christianity claims that once you are married, you become one flesh. So it can't fall to a solely um, critique of like what the role of the woman is and what the role of the man is. The metaphor is already inherent in Christianity. It's this idea of that when man and woman come together, they become one flesh. So it is not possible to critique what that actually sort of manifests itself. It's the way that you guys function together. And in my opinion, the only way to sort of reconcile opposites is by having a third. And it's exactly like the way you pointed it out is by you both sort of looking up, sort of discussing at the top about what that is. Yeah, someone said that the way to integrate a paradox is in a person. It's the only way a paradox can be integrated is in a person. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's a deep idea. Um, Kevia, thank you very much uh, for the talk. The talk really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah, no problem. All the best. You've been listening to Conversations on Masculinity with Manifesto. We enjoy good discussions, but far more importantly, we are a real community with plenty of opportunities for you to engage online and in person. So check out our website on manifesto.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed the content here, then please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks.